0: pray, then we're going to dive right in. Father God, I thank you for uh, this congregation here that meets this morning. It's no uh, question at all, Lord, that these folks represent much more of the maturity of our church, folks who have walked with you for a long time and love this church and love you, and uh, they're willing, Lord, to adapt with us. And I thank you for that, and I thank you, Lord, that they've done that. And God, as a result of that, I pray you'd bless us, make us glad that we met here today, with you and worshiped you and took holy communion and then also uh, dove a bit into your word and so God help us to understand what you have said to us uh, in in your word help us to do justice to it and apply it to our lives and I pray this in Jesus holy and precious name amen well if I don't miss my guess um, I'll bet you that each and every one of us could tell some kind of story of going from pride to humility in our lives give me a head nod that we could all do that, right? I mean, we've lived long enough, even most teenagers have lived long enough where they have reached the dizzying heights of believing too much in one's own abilities and then experienced the crash of being brought back down to reality. I mean, if you and I were having a cup of coffee this morning and talking about that, you could tell me story after story of experiences, some big, some small, of going from pride to humility. And once we establish that, the questions that I want us to wrestle with today are simply this then. Where is God in all of that? And what does he think about that when we're ping-ponging back and forth between pride and humility? What's his take on pride and humility? And how is he involved in this when we are experiencing, again, the dizzying heights down to the crash of reality? As many of you know, we're in a study in the Old Testament book of Daniel here at Scottsdale Bible, and this morning we come to chapter 4. A very unusual story, but get this, an unusual story that is also talking to us about some very common and usual struggles. But we had the story read for you just a few minutes ago, but let's quickly review some of the highlights. At the beginning of this book, we got a guy named Daniel, a young Jewish teenager who was brought to a very secular nation called Babylon with a bunch of other captured Jewish exiles in the year 605 BC. And Nebuchadnezzar, you might remember, is the king of Babylon, a very prideful, and as we're going to see, a powerful leader who had conquered much of the territory around him and was building a huge empire to himself. And for reasons that we've looked at over the last few weeks, Nebuchadnezzar had taken a real liking to Daniel and shown some interest in what he would call Daniel's God. Many of you have had experiences like that. You have friends and family members that don't really know the Lord, but they're interested in spiritual things. They have their own kind of form of spirituality, even though it's not grounded in much. And they say to you quite often that they're kind of enamored with your faith. They're interested in your faith, but they see it as your faith, your God. That's what's happening here with Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. He's interested in Daniel's God. And so by the time we get to chapter 4 here, it's most likely 30 to 35 years into Daniel's exile in Babylon, and he's still serving in the king's court, giving Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar counsel and wisdom on personal and societal matters. And as we know from reading the account earlier, Nebuchadnezzar here in chapter 4 has had another bad dream, right? Right? He had a bad dream in chapter two, now he has another bad dream in chapter four, and this time it's a dream of a huge tree, so big that it reaches all the way up to the sky, could be seen by everybody on earth, a beautiful tree that provided protection for all the animals, but then it was cut down by the command of what we assume to be an angel and all the animals scattered. And a stump is left remaining, kind of picture that, with a band of iron and bronze around it to protect it, maybe a fence around it, It just as a symbol of protection. And yet we also see there, Nebuchadnezzar did in his dream, a man, at least kind of a man. It was a man who thought he was an ox or a bull. We'll get to that in a little bit here. And so for seven periods, which most Bible experts take to mean years, this man lived in the wild like an ox or a bull would. And the angel in the dream said to Nebuchadnezzar that all this was done so that the man would know that God is God, that he is the most high, you're going to want to grab onto those words, who rules and has sovereignty even over what happens here on earth. This was Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it obviously bothered him and kept him awake. They didn't have Ambien back then, so that when you had a bad dream, you just took a pill and went back to sleep. No, you had to lay awake there and think about that dream all night and try to figure it out. But Nebuchadnezzar couldn't figure it out. And even his most trusted advisors and friends couldn't figure out what it meant. So he gave Daniel a shot. And as we all know, was par for the course of Daniel. God had given him the ability— to figure out dreams, and he tells Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel does, in what had to be a moment in time for both of them, it's you, Nebuchadnezzar. You are that tree, and you're that man who becomes a beast. Your kingdom has become really great. You've read too many of your own press releases, and God's going to bring you down a bit. He's going to let you know what it's like to live out in the wild without the protection of your kingdom, your castle, your army, your advisors, your family, your money, your power. And he's going to do all this simply so that you might forever know that God is God and that he's much more powerful and sovereign than even you. And sure enough, about a year later, all of this comes true for Nebuchadnezzar. He's walking on the roof of his palace, admiring all of his land acquisitions and things like that, reveling in it like a guy who just won the lottery. And right then he hears a voice out of nowhere say, enough is enough, it's time for some humbling, and his mind is changed to that of an animal, in this case, a bull. It's actually a documented psychological illness called boanthropy, where people who have mental illness actually think that they're some sort of an animal, in this case, a bull, and so Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he's a bull, he, he eats grass, he lives in the field, things like that. And though rare, we do have documented cases like this, even in the 20th and now 21st century. And this is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. And so for seven years, he lives this way, in the wild, like an animal. And though, as you can imagine, it was a very humbling thing for him, and at the end of seven years, he was restored, and at this point, he finally realizes who God is and how pride and humility function in God's economy. I got to tell you, folks, it's a wild story. Get it? Wild story? That went right by you, didn't it? See, you're going to use that one this week. I know you will. It's a very unusual story. And yet, don't miss this. As, as unusual as a story is, it's a story, however, that also deals with very usual types of things that we struggle with, namely pride and humility. So here's the main point of this story. Here's the primary thing you need to walk away with, and that is that God is in the habit of helping us recognize pride and experience humility in our lives. It's true. It's true. God is in the habit of helping you and me, just like with Nebuchadnezzar, but obviously in different ways, recognize pride inside of us and experience humility as we're going to see a character trait that he is very much in love with. Look at verse 37. This is the summary verse of the entire chapter. It says, "'Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven,' For all his works are right and his ways are just, Now I get this, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Focus on that last phrase. For those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Because you see, that is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar learned here. I mean, he was one of the most powerful and successful leaders of the ancient world. He was the guy who created and built those famous hanging gardens of Babylon, which some of you know became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he learned through all of his success and prosperity in this one chapter here that God is God and that he is bent on helping humanity realize this. And one of the ways that God helps us realize who he is and how great he is and how powerful he wants to be in our lives is through taking us from pride into the experience of humility. Pride and humility, two traits many of us have had some experience with. Now, I don't want us to go any further this morning without clearly defining our terms so that you and I know what we're dealing with, okay? Because a lot of people throw around this term pride, and a lot of people throw around the term humility, but I'm not sure we've ever fully understood exactly what we mean by these two terms. So I'm going to give you two working definitions of them, just so that we're all on the same page. Here's the first one. Pride is an unhealthily high estimation of oneself. Is that simple enough? Pride is an unhealthily high, we'll define that, estimation of oneself. And all you simply need to know is that we see multiple signs of pride in this chapter here with Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 4. Nebuchadnezzar self-confessedly says that he's at ease in his house and prospering in his castle. Do you see that there? At ease and prospering. So just picture some guy sitting back with a smile on his face, lazily basking in the pleasure of his own pursuits. That was Nebuchadnezzar. These two phrases here, at ease and prosper, simply mean that Nebuchadnezzar had lots of contentment and lots of security in his life, all based on his material acquisitions and his military accomplishments. In other words, he had vocational success and material wealth, and don't miss this, he felt great about it. He was the quintessential self-made man. That was Nebuchadnezzar, and he felt very good about all of that. So we see pride in the making right here at the beginning of this chapter with self-satisfaction and self-reliance guiding its way. Then look at verse 27, when Daniel's telling the king what this dream was about and what was going to take place. Daniel wraps up with this, and this is very revealing. He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there perhaps may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Interesting. Interesting. Daniel is telling the king here to practice righteousness, insinuating that he doesn't practice it now, and to show mercy to the oppressed, insinuating that he doesn't show much mercy now. Don't miss this, folks. Two very clear signs of pride. Doing your own thing on a moral level, not listening to anyone else, let alone God, and then failing to show compassion to those in need, caring only about oneself. And as if all of this were not enough, basking in one's own wealth, living an unaccountable life, and then showing no concern for others, look at how all of this comes to a head in verses 29 to 30. It says, At the end of 12 months, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? (laughs) And you and I say, whoa. I mean, that's like Christianity 101, that that's pride, right? I mean, even most non-believers today who heard somebody who talk like that would say, I think you're kind of prideful. What do you mean you have built it for your glory, for your majesty? I mean, that's just pride right there in the making. And the reality is, is that many of us struggle with thinking like that all the time. About 11 years ago, Uh, Phoenix Wealth Management Survey came out and for the last 11 years here in Phoenix they've done a wealth management survey of people who have high net worth and in the first year that it came out USA Today ran a cover story on it and just cited that one of the things that they asked senior corporate executives with high net worths back then is who they credit their their current financial status to 99 percent of executives polled said they credit their current financial status to hard work 97% said to their intelligence and their good sense. 83% said to their higher-than-average IQ. 62% said that it was being the best in every situation. 32% said luck. Nobody said God. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Polling people from all walks of life on how you got to where you were, and nobody, at least in this survey, cites God. That's simply Nebuchadnezzar. Add it all up, folks, sitting at ease, basking in his own accomplishments, living an unaccountable life, showing very little compassion, caring only about self, and then talking about what I built by my mighty power for the sake of my own glory and majesty. All of these are markers of pride. Pride is all throughout this chapter. Good old-fashioned human pride that thinks very highly of oneself, but not too highly of God and others. That's pride. Don't ever forget this, an unhealthily high estimation of oneself. So what's humility? Well, that's simple. Once you understand pride, humility then becomes this. It's a right or proper estimation of oneself, right? Let's just think logically about it. If pride is thinking too highly of yourself and not high enough of God and others, then humility is this right or proper estimation of yourself. So look at how Nebuchadnezzar eventually sees himself and all of humanity in light of, who God, in light of when God finally gives him a dose of humility. This is very revealing. Look at verse 35. Nebuchadnezzar is speaking, and he says this. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? So focus on that little phrase there, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Let's make sure we understand this rightly, folks. It doesn't say that all the inhabitants of the earth are nothing. Don't misread it like that. But just simply in light of who God is and how great and powerful he is, we are seen as just about nothing when compared to him. That's what Nebuchadnezzar realized. Isaiah would use a very similar word picture in talking about eternity when he said our days like here are kind of like grass, here today and gone tomorrow. He wasn't literally saying that we are grass. He's just saying that when you compare our short time here and our fragile lives to all of eternity, we are like grass. And I think the same thing is going on here. Nebuchadnezzar is saying all the inhabitants of the earth are kind of like nothing compared to who God really is. And that's what humility is, folks. It's having a right estimation of who you are in the grand scheme of things when you match yourself up against God and His goodness and His glory. It's understanding your place in the universe. As many of you know, Teddy Roosevelt was our 26th president and the youngest guy to ever be president. And uh, as many of you also know, he loved the outdoors. He just loved being outdoors and he was responsible for the creation of several of our national parks and monuments. And he also was what you might call a liberal believer in God. He said at one point, I reverently invoke, reverently invoke for my guidance the direction and favor of Almighty God on a regular basis. And in light of this kind of faith, it's said on a regular basis that whenever Roosevelt would have dignitaries visiting the White House, at the end of a long day, he would take them out onto the White House lawn where it was pitch black. He didn't have city lights back then. And on a clear night, he'd have them sit out under the stars. And after a long, long moment of silence, sitting there just gazing up in the stars, he would say to his visiting friends this. He would say, gentlemen, I believe we are small enough now. Let's go to bed. And thus ended the day i'd say that's a guy who is starting to figure out his place in the universe you see pride thinks too highly of oneself it doesn't really consider who god is and what he says about you and other people while humility does consider this and takes into consideration who god is and what he has said and folks once we get this we're now ready to understand the pivot point of daniel chapter 4 the point that god's trying to make to nebuchadnezzar and i believe by extension to you and me and it's truly the point here that everything hinges on in this chapter and quite frankly in the bible look up here on the screen and it's this and that is that without a biblically theocentric worldview, it's really hard to be humble i know that's a mouthful but we gotta wrestle with this one today we're just about at the mountaintop right now Without a biblically theocentric worldview, it's really hard to be humble. And folks, I literally mean a biblically theocentric worldview. Not just a theocentric worldview, which simply means that you believe in God, because many people have that. 99% of Americans still probably believe in God. Nebuchadnezzar had that. But we're talking about a worldview that deeply believes in the God of the Bible a biblically theocentric worldview where the Bible for you affirms who God is and what he is about. And I would simply argue that outside of this kind of worldview, I think it's really hard to be nudged in the direction of humility. I think it's possible, but I think it's really hard. Because core to the Christian worldview and the Judeo-Christian worldview is the fact that God calls us to a life of humility. I want to show you what I mean. This is interesting when you look closely at Daniel 4, how this interplay here works. As as the account starts out, Nebuchadnezzar praises the God of the Bible very early on, and he says some pretty good things about him, just like many of your non-Christian friends might do. Look at verses 2 and 3. I don't have it up here on the screen, but but he basically says that God does signs and wonders, that his kingdom is everlasting, and that his dominion endures throughout many generations. So some pretty good things that he says about God. In fact, you'd be tempted to put Nebuchadnezzar right along Abraham, Moses, and Elijah in his exposition of God here. He sounds like many people today, who though they might not go to church, they don't really care for institutional religion, they got their own spiritual ideas, but they would affirm some key and right things about God, in which you might think that they get it. But not so quick. For as the pressure of life heats up for Nebuchadnezzar with this terrible dream he has, Look at how he describes God in his initial interactions with Daniel in verses 8 and 9. We'll give you the scripture up here on the screen. It says, At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of, here we go, my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the musicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you tell me the visions of my dream that i saw in their interpretation now folks if you don't notice anything else in these two verses simply notice all the bad theology laced throughout it right did you catch that i mean he calls daniel by not his real name he calls him belteshazzar which is the name that nebuchadnezzar and his crew had given him when he came to babylon Belteshazzar, as we learned in the first week, means may Bel protect. Bel was one of the leading fictitious gods of Babylon back then. So he calls them this pagan name after these fictitious gods. And then he even says, and this is after my God, after the name of my God. And then he boldly goes on to say, because Daniel, i got to tell you, the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that allows you to interpret these dreams. What do you think Daniel thought of when he thought the spirit of the holy gods is in you? He's probably thinking, dude, you got it all wrong. I mean, I've been with you 30, 35 years trying to hammer into your head who God is, and you still don't get it yet. You got it partly right, but then all of a sudden you're saying the spirit of the holy gods. You see, this is what theologians would call polytheism. Simply the fact that one believes that the universe is made up of a bunch of little gods that kind of compete with each other, and some of them stronger than others, some of them nicer than others, some of them real arrogant and prideful, some of them not so. After the Babylonians would come the Greeks. And many of you know about the Greek gods like Zeus and Apollos and things like that. And so please know that when Nebuchadnezzar here talks about these various gods, Daniel in his mind is going, what a terribly wrong view of truth, Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, way back in the law, Judaism 101 was this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, not two, not three, Not one among many, but one and only. That's God. And please see, folks, Nebuchadnezzar didn't recognize this. He was still mired in his view that there were all these gods out there, his his untruthful spiritual viewer lacking truth. And the reality is, don't miss this, is that this affected his character. I mean, if you believe that there are some gods that are kind of prideful and arrogant and out of control, and some gods that are mean and nasty, and some that are kind of nice and grateful and might show compassion on you, you're going to probably end up doing that in your life as well, right? I mean, it's just like psychology 101. What we believe will eventually work its way out in our actions, and it's true, That if you believe these certain things about God, it's probably going to affect your character. But by converse, if you believe in the one true God, who is good, holy, compassionate, just, and grace-filled, then hopefully you'll become like that as well. That's why I say that if you have a biblically theocentric worldview, then you should be humble. Now, I want us to wrestle with this for a moment. As many of you know, I'm a lawyer's kid which simply means that I was taught ever since I was a little guy that any time somebody puts a proposition before me to question it, to play the devil's advocate, to ask myself, is that really true and how would somebody respond to this if they were skeptical about it? So as I was preparing this week and I got to this point of a biblically theocentric worldview creating godlike humility, I thought, well, what would be the skeptical response to this? I mean, what would somebody who didn't agree with this counter with? And it hit me right away. It's a no-brainer they would say, well, if this is true, Jamie, then why aren't more Christians, why aren't more people who claim to know and follow Jesus really and truly humble, right? I mean, if it's true that a biblically theocentric worldview, and then when we get to the New Testament, a worldview in which honors Jesus as Lord creates humility, then why is it that we have so many Christians today that don't seem very humble? We all know what we're talking about here. Give me a head nod on that one, don't you? We all know people who've walked with God, walked with God, for like 40, 50 years at length, and they're still arrogant and full of pride. Why is that so? We've got to wrestle with that. What's going on with that? You know, some people say to me, they'll say, well, Jamie, just relax a little bit, because, you know, it just takes time for some people. I'm going, 50 years! What do you mean it takes time? They're going to die like that. I mean, we know that. Let's just be realistic about it, right? So what's going on there? Why is it that this doesn't work for some, if not at times, many people? And without getting into whether these people are saved or not, I don't even want to go there today. We'll just leave that for another time. At the very least, I think we can all agree on this. You ready for this? And that is that at the very least, somebody who claims to believe in and know God through Jesus Christ but doesn't display a humility of spirit that is becoming increasingly like Jesus doesn't really know him as they claim to. I know that sounds harsh, but it's just true. There's no other way around it. Jesus would talk about this all the time. He would say that if you're a follower of me, you're going to be loving. John would say in 1 John that if you know God, you are loving, implying that you're also humble. Paul the Apostle would link the fact that if you really know God and Jesus, you're going to be humble. Jesus himself would do that. I mean, the reality is is that the Bible affirms all over again that if you claim to know God, one of the markers that is going to be true in your life is that you're going to start to become humble just like him and just like his son, Jesus. And so what I would submit to you is that it still is a problem of theology, that we just don't really know God in such a way that our character, as well as how we see him and others, is fundamentally changed. So if somebody says, I know Jesus, and yet they lack humility, I'm not sure they really know the Jesus that I know. That's the only conclusion I I can come up with. As many of you know, one of my uh, favorite pastors in this area is a guy by the name of Tom Schrader, who's the pastor of East Valley Bible Church. I, I really like him because he's a good man with a good heart, and he's a very sharp teacher of the Word of God, and quite frankly, he's also just downright funny. And I just love his, his spirit. And a while back, he gave me a phrase that has to do with what we're talking about right now. But over time, I forgot precisely how the phrase went, but it was really good. So on Thursday this week, as I was preparing my message, I texted him. Uh, he doesn't respond very well to emails, and so I have his private cell phone, and he can't avoid a text message. And so I asked him to remind me of this phrase that he used. And 24 hours went by, and he still had not gotten back to me. And so it's now Friday afternoon, and I honestly thought to myself, what a loser. And so I texted him again, and I thought it was a very gentle text. I said, and I quote, unless you are in a crisis, answer me. I need this for my sermon on Sunday. I thought that was gentle. Again, I'm just trying to help him understand that, hey, we're friends, we're colleagues. I mean, don't ignore me. I want to read you his text response to me right out of the phone. This is great. He finally texted me back Friday afternoon. He says, a bit bossy, don't you think? He says, kind of late to be figuring out what to say Sunday, isn't it? He's not done. He says, I'm not one of your highly paid, perhaps even overpaid hirelings. Ooh, he's just getting nasty. So finally, he, 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 he gets self-control and he answers my question. He says, he says, here it is, our theology neither ascends high enough nor descends low enough meaning that our view of God is not high enough and our view of man is not low enough. That's our problem, Jamie. And then he says, when you reference me, the correct spelling of my last name is (laughs) S-H-R-A-D-E-R. I love that guy. And I love his take on the core problem. Uh, the question we have before us is, why do people who claim to know and believe in God and Jesus, why are they not very humble? Here's what Schrader would say, that our theology ascends neither high enough, nor does it descend low enough. Do you understand what he means by this? He's saying that our view of God isn't high enough. We don't really see him for who he is. That was Nebuchadnezzar's problem. But he would also say that our view of man is not low, no, low enough. We don't see ourselves for who we are. And folks, I believe this is why so many Christians today fail to develop Christ-like humility. Because they have a theology of themselves that is too high and a corresponding theology of God that's too low. And the Bible comes along and reverses this. And this is exactly the journey that God took Nebuchadnezzar through. Through his experiences, he learned that he wasn't the center of the universe. That he was not the self-made man that he thought he was that there are other factors in play, not the least of which was God Almighty and his absolute power and control, his sovereignty that's woven into every aspect of our lives. In fact, look with me one last time real quickly at the text here and how Nebuchadnezzar would wrap up his view of God now fully changed in verses 34 and 35. These are some of the very last words you're going to find of Nebuchadnezzar and all of Daniel. He says, at the end of the days, I Ben Nebuchadnezzar lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And then that phrase we looked at earlier, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will, among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so don't miss, folks, the change in Nebuchadnezzar here. I mean, he went from Bel and holy gods and my God to now praising the one and only true God. I mean, commentators actually argue back and forth here on whether this guy was saved or not. That's how profound this change was in his life. He he went from, from being a polytheist to a monotheist, truly believing in the God of the Old Testament. And it's fascinating, when he calls God the most high there, he uses that phrase six times in Daniel chapter 4, the most times in any other chapter in the Bible, in that great trivia, most high, most times you're ever going to find that in any other part of the Bible. And when he uses it early on, I don't think he really gets what he means by it, but I think we'd all agree that by the time he got to this point, he gets it. And as we noted earlier, he now even sees humanity for what they are. Loved and valued by God, yes, but not quite as spectacular as Hollywood or the media would make us out to be. Nebuchadnezzar saw humanity now as fallen, sinful, pride-capable, and full of self, and compared to God, not too much. To use our friend Schrader's phrase, Nebuchadnezzar's theology had begun to ascend high enough as well as descend low enough. And as a result, don't miss this, humility was starting to be experienced by him you know i think this is a huge challenge to you and me today how high do you ascend in your view of god and how low do you ascend in your view of yourself i mean i gotta tell you folks when i do a self-analysis of my life here's where i'm at right now i really do believe that god is my friend and is in that he's intimate with me i've read john 15 where jesus says i call you friends and i've read first john where God tells me that he loves me with an everlasting love. I believe that with everything in me. But you know, I also believe that God is holy and awesome, all-powerful, all-good, and very, very different than me. And as a result of that, I walk through many days having very much an awe, a respect, even what we might call an Old Testament fear of God. Do you ever have that? The reality is... He is so great he's so awesome sin cannot even be in his presence that's why jesus had to die for us you know some people tell me that when they die they can't wait to get to heaven and have a cup of coffee with god and ask him all the questions that have bothered them the side of heaven and i sit there and think do you have any idea what you're saying i mean do we all understand that's not going to happen that that never says in the bible that when you die you're going to give knuckles to god and say you know hey dude really glad to see you You know, I got some questions about some things I didn't understand this side of heaven. I mean, he loves you, but that's not going to be what happens when you first meet him. Have you ever read the Bible? It says that when you first meet him, every knee is going to bow, and everybody's going to say, he is Lord. Even the elders in Revelation chapter 4 laid their crowns down and said, worthy are you, O Lord. That's going to be our response. We're going to be so blown away with His holiness, His goodness, His power, that we're going to fall on our knees. We're going to be humbled in that moment. And so why not practice now? Why not allow your, your, your view of God now to be what it is? Yes, He loves you. Yes, He places value, places value on your life. But at the same time, He's holy and He's good and He's totally different from you and I. He's God. I know people also who, 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 I'm sorry, when I look at my own life, I also realize that I, in my view of me that I'm valued and loved by God and, and that I even possess traits from creation that God wants me to use in, in serving him that come from being in the image of God. But you know, I also realize that I'm very, very fallen, capable of grievous sin, and that I live every day with a battle between self-dependence and God-dependence. Can you relate to that? In, in other words, you, the old, old Puritan phrase, and I don't want, we know we don't like this phrase today, I see a lot of wickedness in me. I really do. Again, I'm not down on myself. I got a pretty good self-image. I know I'm loved. I got a great wife. I got three kids that are turning out pretty well so far. I got a great job with my church, and I feel very good about my life. But I also know how sinful and fallen I am inside. My question is, do you? I mean, I'm talking about having a low self-image. I'm just talking about having an honest view of who you are. I love how Esther DeWall says it in an article she wrote a while back in Christianity Today magazine. This is great, summing up all that we're looking at here. She says, humility is facing the truth. It is useful to remind myself that the word itself comes from hummus, meaning earth, and in the end simply means that I allow myself to be earthed in the truth that lets God be God and myself be his creature. She says, if I hold on to this, it helps prevent me from putting myself at the center and instead allows me to put God and other people at the center. Isn't that so cool? That when you honor the truths that Nebuchadnezzar found here, the truths that the Bible affirms of who God is and who you are, they actually become your friend. It allows you to become centered in who you really are and who God really is and allows you to become an other-centered, God-like person, a Christ-like person in your life and I think that's what we're all after and so here's your take-home point with this we're done because we got to go to the communion table here's a point I want to carry you to carry with you throughout this week and that is simply that the right view of God then leads to a healthy view of self it's just true a right view of God leads to a healthy view of ourselves that's what we're learning here and so as we go to the communion table I just simply want you to ask what's my view of God do I know who loves me I hope you do. Do I know that he gives value on my life? I hope you do. But do you also know that he has labeled you for what you are, a sinner in need of grace, somebody deeply flawed and fallen that he still cares about but now wants to redeem? And if you're redeemed, he wants to sanctify you, make you more like him. And the only way that's going to happen is when you see you for who you are, stop reading the press releases around you, And you see God for who he is. And the Bible tells you that all over the place. One of the things I love about this communion table is that it's a time for all of us to reflect. We're going to give you a chance to do that right now. To reflect on who the Lord is in your life. And I encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us loads full of grace and truth. And that they all came to us in Christ. And the Lord, when Jesus came to this earth, he told us a lot of things about ourselves and how loved though fallen we are. And then he told us a lot about you. And piggybacking on some of the things that we're learning here in the Old Testament, he taught us about your goodness and your grace, your sovereignty, your truth, your just nature. And then he went to the cross so that we might be forgiven, so that fallen, sinful humanity might be brought into relationship with a holy, good, grace-filled God. And so Father, I pray that right now our theology might start to ascend a bit higher and descend a bit lower in our lives. Meet us at this table, we pray, in Christ's holy and precious name, amen. Well, the communion servers are going to be handing out the communion elements to you right now. You're going to be handed a little piece of wafer, unleavened bread, as well as a cup of juice. And this is very similar to Jesus' meal that he had with the disciples before his arrest and crucifixion, where he took the, the bread and he took the wine, he said, this is my body, this is my blood, Shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Meditate on what Christ has done for you now, church. Meditate on who he is and who you are, and we'll all partake together.
1: you gave your life on a brutal cross Lord we remember this is the way you've chosen to say this is the way you make all things new this is the way you've chosen to say This is the way you make all things new, broken and beautiful, extravagant love, prodigal grace, broken and beautiful, God's perfect justice, mercy's embrace. As we break this bread, and we, we drink this cup, Lord, we remember, remember it was for my sin that your flesh was torn. Lord, we remember this is the way you've chosen to stay the way you make all things new this is the way you've chosen to say this is the way you make all things new broken and beautiful broken and beautiful Striving in love part of Broken and beautiful beautiful. God's perfect justice mercy's embrace broken and
0: So on the night that Jesus was betrayed he took the bread that they were eating he said this bread is my body given and broken for you eat in remembrance of me in the same way Jesus took the cup that they were drinking he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness the remission of your sins and whenever you drink remember me our heavenly father indeed in this moment we remember your son christ and we pray god that his humility might rub off on us we thank you that you sent him the second person of the trinity the incarnate son of god to be the sacrifice for our sins we can't think of a more humbling act. And so, Fathers, we go now in the name of your Son, Christ, and in the power of your Holy Spirit who inhabits us, God, I pray that we might learn from the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar and that, God, we might make a choice to go from pride to humility in our lives. We thank you for working in our lives. Thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for the goodness, the grace, and the truth that you've given us. And we pray these things only and always in Christ's name.